0: Hey there! Sorry to interrupt. Just before you get into this episode of the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast, did you know you can now support the podcast on Patreon? Head on over to patreon.com forward slash tfadpod, where your monthly donations will help support what I do in producing enjoyable and thought-provoking material. Without your support, I'm just a guy and a microphone. But with your support, I'm a person who can share thoughtful perspectives on controversial topics. Don't forget to share the podcast on your social media to help spread the word. Thank you. Warning, this episode contains adult themes, bad language, and material that some people may find distressing. Hello, this is Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad. I hope you're having a great day, and welcome to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. The 21st of May, 1999, was one of the darkest days in the history of my hometown, Adelaide, South Australia. On that day, four men were apprehended for the murders of 12 people that took place over a seven-year period. The murders would come to be known as the Snowtown Murders or the Bodies in the Barrels case because towards the end of the seven-year period, the perpetrators rented a disused bank building in the regional city of Snowtown to store the bodies of the victims in barrels of acid to hasten decomposure. This episode of the podcast is not a blow-by-blow account of what happened. If you want that, there are plenty of documentaries that pay particular attention to the details. But what I want to talk about is the culture that allowed those crimes to take place and my connection to it. Now, all of this is my opinion. I'm not a professional sociologist, criminologist, or whatever. I'm just a guy with an opinion. So, take everything I say as that. In my opinion, the two biggest factors that allowed 12 people to needlessly die were social neglect and mental health issues. Social Neglect In a weird juxtaposition, numerous places in South Australia, and especially in the north of Adelaide, were named after either people in the United Kingdom, places in the United Kingdom, or named by emigrants from the United Kingdom who settled and purchased land in the area. Elizabeth, Salisbury, Croydon, Bowden, Peterhead, Ascot Park, Keswick, Urbray, Inglewood, a whole slew of them. The name Adelaide itself has British royal connections. Which is then contrasted by the fact that a number of these suburbs and places named after seemingly beautiful locations in the United Kingdom, are what we would call working class. In Adelaide, the further north you go, the more industrialised the area is and the higher the disadvantage. The main road that leads north in Adelaide is called, somewhat imaginatively, Main North Road. It starts in the inner north, Where you go through places like North Adelaide and Prospect. Suburbs littered with multi-million dollar homes on large blocks along tree-lined streets. Go a bit further north to suburbs like Blair Athol and Enfield. Definitely not poor suburbs, but also not as nice as those suburbs closer to the city. Then... Once you cross Grand Junction Road, you hit Paraka and Parafield, definitely blue-collar territory and straddling the geographical epicentres of entrenched poverty in Adelaide. Then you get to Salisbury, Elizabeth and Davaron Park, which to an outsider is like Willard walking into Kurtz's Cambodian refuge. And these are the areas where the lowest index of relative socioeconomic advantage scores are concentrated on. We're talking about 40% youth unemployment, lower education outcomes, especially lower full-time education participation rates, higher rates of substantiated child abuse reports, higher proportion of low-income families, higher rates of intergenerational welfare dependence, higher rates of teenage pregnancy, higher proportion of blue-collar slash industrial employment, and up to three-quarters of low-income households have children. In short, a whole lot of incredibly depressing statistics This all fuels the fire of social neglect. People who are neglected in a socio-economic abyss with no reason and no means to get out, which perpetuates a cycle of abuse, hopelessness, and social disengagement. Why do I mention this? I may be displaying my conservative values here, but... I believe the lack of strong social connection, unstable family situation, and absence of positive role models played a part. I don't believe, and I'm not saying that just because a child doesn't have a father means they're going to become delinquent. There are plenty of studies to refute and clarify that basic point. But what I do believe is that when the cards are stacked against you, you need stability and assistance to rise above the situation. And the people of the Snowtown murders, both the victims and the perpetrators, were in unstable environments and were left on their own. The cards were stacked against them. These people all lived in social housing which means they were already in some sort of economic disadvantage. They all had lower education outcomes. There was a feeling of injustice and maybe even a distrust of authority. One of the common themes in the background of the perpetrators was a visceral hatred of pedophiles and homosexuals and a desire to dish out vigilante justice to them even on baseless suspicion. And drug addiction is involved as well. The general area of the northern suburbs of Adelaide have been neglected and derided for generations. As Jesus said in John 1, 46, can anything good come out of Elizabeth? Now, the movie Snowtown which was based on the Snowtown murders. It didn't exactly portray the events accurately. Some artistic license was used. But what the movie did capture brilliantly was the lack of opportunity and the hopelessness felt by the people the story portrayed. The address given by the mum in the movie when she calls to the police on the guy abusing her children is a real address and is only a few kilometers from the real address where most of the murders took place mental health the next issue i believe was a factor in the case were mental health issues, particularly those related to childhood trauma. Issues that were undetected, undiagnosed, untreated, and hidden until it was too late. Notwithstanding any underlying genetic factors, every single person charged with those murders was either abused as a child were in toxic, unstable, and unhealthy relationships they couldn't escape from, or had underlying issues such as psychopathy. Combined with the aforementioned social disconnect, the whole scenario became a rolling car crash, because we see in the available research that people who have been in things like out-of-home care People who were sexually abused as children, people subject to bullying and other traumatic events, have a higher rate of interaction with the criminal justice system. What we also see is that positive and nurturing relationships with family, school and community all act as protective factors with regards to criminal offending in later years. These people had very little of that. Now, obviously, not everyone who has mental health issues goes on to be a prolific criminal. And I'm not saying that people with mental health issues are criminals or should be treated with suspicion. But could a proper network where people are cared for, supported not stigmatized, and given positive pathways to be healthy have prevented these atrocities from happening? I believe so. Now, hindsight is a wonderful thing, but I think we as society need pathways to be able to help those that ring alarm bells and in a way that preserves their dignity and their humanity. My connection. So, what is my connection to all this? Well, thankfully, I wasn't involved in what happened. I don't know any of either the victims or the perpetrators, but I am connected in a few ways. One, the location. I was born at a hospital in a nearby suburb and lived in the immediate vicinity for about a year as an infant. Fun fact, my parents were friends with the family next door, whose son was eventually discovered to be a criminally inclined psychopath. Nothing to do with this case. I also grew up on the cusp of the disadvantaged areas of northern Adelaide. Definitely urban and with decent amenities, but go just a couple of miles north and the changing landscape is quite apparent as it becomes industrial, more prolific with social housing, less amenities, and those amenities are more run down. During the late 1990s, I lived less than six miles away, as the crow flies, from the addresses where the perpetrators lived, and I had relatives who lived barely two kilometres away. Further to that, the addresses where most of the murders took place was not even one and a half kilometres from where I used to work. In the year or so, I was a delivery monkey for a multinational pizza chain I would have driven past that place dozens of times and it is not beyond the grasp of possibility that either I or my colleagues delivered there. So when the story broke and pictures of the road and the vicinity and the house were all splashed over the media, I knew straight away what part of Adelaide it was in. The next connection is that I was in a low-income family. After my father passed away in a transport accident, my family relied on welfare. We lived paycheck to paycheck. It's not much fun not having much. My mum eventually met and married my stepdad, who himself was a blue-collar worker. And if it wasn't for his job... It would have been two welfare checks as our source of income. However, after my stepdad passed away during my tertiary education years, we did go back to relying on welfare. And the pain of that struggle is something I still bear to this day. Next, I was in a family that had an amount of instability. After my father passed away, my mum made some bad choices in men, and one of those bad choices in men meant very bad news for me. Then, that bad news for me was the basis of an underlying mental health condition I carried for decades until a psychiatric diagnosis a few years ago. Then, I was also in a family that suffered generational trauma. My mum, her sister and their mum were physically, emotionally and financially abused and tormented by their dad, my grandfather. Further to that, my stepdad was a ward of the state who spent a decade in a boys reformatory after he and his brother were forcibly removed from their home. So, the way my parents behaved bore the scars of their childhood. This is not to say they were bad parents, no. They did the best they could with what they had, and I am extremely proud to be their child. But, it is also an unescapable fact that they were dealt a crappy hand of cards to play with. So, with all that in mind, I asked myself the question, why did I turn out the way I did? A university-educated person, a husband, a father, an author, a podcaster, a business manager... And most importantly, a non-criminal. And the honest answer, I don't know. But I think some of the things that played a part were. I had parents that were caring and supportive despite their own struggles. I both saw the value of higher education and believed it was in my grasp i wanted to be able to afford the things i wanted and to obtain them by legal and ethical means i believed in respecting the law my stepdad was a positive role model and profound influence and so were my pastors when i became a christian I fell into fundamentalism which prides itself on its people being law-abiding goody-two-shoes unless masks and social restrictions are involved. Hmm, funny about that. And I also sincerely believe that the best form of welfare is a job. Without getting into a spiel about capitalism and GDP and all that stuff, having a job Means the government can use those welfare dollars on people who really need it and to boost the justice and mental health systems. Now, as I said, I'm no expert. I'm just a person with an opinion. But I believe in community engagement, I believe in being personally productive. I believe in nurturing and raising strong, positive, resilient children. I believe in respecting the law. Because if we respect the law, then we're less likely to hurt each other. We're less likely to commit criminal acts. I believe in having strong networks of friends. I also believe that if the signs are there for mental health issues then we should be supportive. We should be encouraging and nurturing and helping people get over them. Having mental health issues isn't a death sentence. And until next time, look after yourselves. Look after each other. Be positive And stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. Have a great day. Have a great week. See you next time.